0: you're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. So when I was five years old, I was kind of precocious, you know, like I I guess like any five year old boy, uh, you know, just kind of would get into trouble pretty frequently. And one moment that stuck with me for years is uh, we were visiting my grandpa's house and my grandpa uh, had been stationed over in Germany right after World War II. And uh, my grandpa up on his fireplace mantle had a really priceless collection of these Bavarian beer steins that he acquired while he was stationed over in Germany and they were displayed up on the fireplace mantle, and I was kind of enamored with them, and I wanted to get a closer look at them, and I just wanted to see them, and every once in a while, he'd come over and take one down, and he'd tell me the story about it, he'd tell me its history, uh, and it was always a, a really great conversation, and you know, I, there was a rule, though, when he left, I wasn't supposed to necessarily go near the fireplace mantle or anything like that, but like any precocious four-year-old boy, I thought it would be a good idea to just see how sturdy that fireplace mantle was. Um, and, you know, I will just say, not as sturdy as one would think. Um, so as a five-year-old boy, I decided to go over there and start seeing if I could do some, some chin-ups on the fireplace mantle. And I think I got to chin-up number two when that fireplace mantle held up about as good as a peace agreement with North Korea. So it came crashing down. And all over the place was shattered pieces of priceless Bavarian beer steins that were one of a kind that my grandpa had acquired and would not be able to replace. And I knew instantaneous, like you do in that moment, like I have done something that I can't fix. I've gone too far and I, I ran, you know, like that's what kids do when you know you're in trouble. It's just something inside all of us, whether you're Adam and Eve or whether you're a five-year-old boy, you know you've messed up and you need to run. And I remember running, I ran to the backyard and he had a shed on his uh, three acres and I just ran and hid behind the shed because I knew there was absolutely no way I could pay my grandpa back. Uh, what I'd done, what I'd destroyed, what I'd broken—there's no way I could pay him back. Have you ever felt that way? Now, maybe it wasn't uh, priceless Bavarian beer steins. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there's something you've done in your life where you look at it, where you're counting the costs, and you go, "Like, there's no way that I can pay that back." Maybe it's a marriage that's fallen apart. Maybe it's someone that you've betrayed. Maybe it's someone that you've let down. Maybe when you look at your story over the last couple of years and some of the major ways that you've blown it, some of your big failures, you wonder, how could God possibly want anything to do with me? And when you think about God, what you think about is that God wants to probably pay me back and not bring me back. Maybe you're thinking about even this last year, or even this last week, or maybe even this morning, or something inside of all of our stories where we want to run because it just seems a little too good to be true that there's a God who could be compassionate toward us, that there's a God that could love us, that there's a God who could restore us. Just something inside all of us. It just seems like when you make a mess of things, when you destroy things, when you break things, relationships, uh, families, uh, possessions, whatever it is, and especially when you can't pay it back, there's no way you're gonna be able to be brought back. Jonah tells us much of that same story, even as we're going to look at this morning. What we're going to look at when we look inside of Jonah he's wrestling with this same thing. What kind of God is he in relationship with? What kind of God does he know? How could a God, a holy and justice and righteous God, want to bring people back instead of just paying them back? When God looks at this world, when he looks at the brokenness of this world, when he looks how messed up you and I are, the rebels that we are, how could he not just want to pay us back? Could God truly want to bring us back? But as we get going, though, we're going to do something a little bit different since we're in a sermon series about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to do something that I think is going to be really fun for us and helpful is we're actually going to look at the story of Jonah through the lens of typology. So can you guys say that with me? Typology. Typology a big fun word. I want you to feel like you got your money's worth this morning. So this is, a, this is a biblical theology word and the word typology is going to come up a definition on the screen for you. Also by Graham Goldsworthy. He says this, he says, typology is seeing how God has specifically designed certain events, people, and institutions that predict and prefigure a stronger and more robust version of events and people and institutions. The relationship is such that the earlier foreshadows the later and the later fills out out and completes the earlier. Okay, all of that is a really big way of saying is there are all sorts of types. There are all sorts of people and institutions and events inside of the Old Testament. As you study them, as you come across them, they're meant to be a type or a foreshadowing or a prefiguring or a prediction or a preview of what's to come in the person of Jesus. So when you see these things, they're supposed to tip you off. that They're, they're, they're to whet your appetite, almost an appetizer of sorts, that there's going to be someone that actually is that is that is greater, that is better, that is stronger stronger. stronger than the type that you're seeing here. As you read the story of of even thinking about the Exodus story with Moses, Moses is is a great leader, but yet he falls short, doesn't he? Or you look at biblical figure after biblical figure, there is this, this falling short aspect that leaves us with an ache, a longing. And Jesus even gives us kind of a clue that this is how we're supposed to read Jonah. In Matthew 12, Jesus even says, I am the greater Jonah. What he's saying is as you read Jonah, as you study Jonah, as you look at Jonah, what you're supposed to see is that Jonah was a preview. He was a precursor to me, that all the ways that Jonah fell short, Jesus stands true. Jesus stands firm. Uh, A couple months ago, I was at Disney World with my kids and they have that, uh, you know, you guys remember that Disney movie, Sword in the Stone? Um, you know, just the boy who could pull the the sword out of the stone and everyone comes and it looks like they're the the worthy one. They're the strongest, they're the fastest, maybe the best looking, whatever it is. And actually had that like at Disney world. And it was just fun to watch people go over and take their picture and try to pull it out. But it it just made me think over and over of like how much of the old Testament is like the sword in the stone. One person after another, one prophet after another, one king after another, one apostle after another, trying to come and pull the sword out of the stone, trying to be worthy, trying to be the prophet that we need, the king that we need, and the priest that we deserve, but yet falling short over and over and over again. So there is, a, there is a typology that's playing out in the book of Jonah that I want us to see this morning. So let's start in the very beginning of Jonah. So Jonah chapter one, verses one and two says this, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Okay, so we know Jonah is a prophet, and a prophet is supposed to speak true words, supposed to be, speak the word of God to who God has sent them to speak to, often offering words of admonition, often offering words of rebuke or encouragement or direction. But a prophet is supposed to speak on behalf of God to who God wants the prophet to speak to. So this is Jonah's assignment. We know that he is a prophet. But what do we also know? Jonah's assignment is to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a really bad place, especially if you're Jonah. Jonah is a a good Jewish guy. He's he's an Israelite, and when he thinks of Nineveh, Nineveh is part of the Assyrian Empire. And when you think Assyrians, you need to think the worst of the worst. These are about the most awful of people that you can get. History tells us the the Ninevites, the Assyrians, would often decapitate their enemies and put their heads on, um, on spears. They would routinely skin people alive and then display them throughout their city. One historian said this, the history of the Assyrian empire is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know in all of human history. These are barbaric, butcherous people. So why would God want to send Jonah to Nineveh? God is tipping his hand right even here at the beginning of the story, saying, I love really broken, messed up people. Because newsflash, that's the only kind of people there are. That's all that's out there. But yet this is hard for Jonah to accept. This is hard for Jonah to embrace. And in some ways, you have to be able to understand why that would be for Jonah. Jonah has watched his people. He's watched his nation be oppressed, often tortured and abused by the Assyrians. This is similar to after World War II, a a Jewish person being sent into Nazi Germany to preach good news to them, to minister to them. Or an African-American man in the 1930s, say in Mississippi, being sent to the KKK to tell them about love and peace and offer them hope. So there's an internal wrestling with Jonah. Jonah is feeling a frustration because you know what Jonah's doing? Jonah's doing what a lot of us do. He's looking at this and saying, God, you're asking too much. This is way too audacious and bold. God, I know that, that you have some grace, but I also know like there's gotta be a limit, right? There's gotta be, you, you've gotta have a threshold. This just seems like you're going too far. So what does Jonah do? Well, in verse three, it says this, but Jonah rose to flee. So here's a prophet, he's got one job, his job is to deliver the mail, his job is to say what God wants to say to who God wants to say it to, and Jonah says, no. Those people are beyond the grip of your grace, those people have gone too far, those people are on the outside of who deserves mercy. So Jonah flees. Jonah flees because in his grid, his understanding of the world, which a lot of us default to and a lot of us can understand, is one of morality. There's good people and there's bad people. There's people that recycle and there's people that don't. There's people that, you know, drive the speed limit and there's those that are pretty liberal with it. There's whatever it is, whatever your moral compass is, Jonah has his in effect. And there there is a glitch in the system. There's a glitch in the moral system of Jonah when he hears he's supposed to go speak to the Ninevites. There's a glitch. I mean, you can almost see him like short-circuiting, like, those people? R- no, really. I mean, he's, he's almost, he can't, he can't do it, so he flees, he runs. Because in Jonah's mind, in Jonah's heart, he can't believe that God wouldn't want to pay back the Nimvites. He thinks that, that, that that's what they deserve. They should be paid back, not brought back. And so what happens next? Well, in God's mercy in God's love, in God's compassion, he doesn't let Jonah go. In fact, Jonah gets on a boat and he's trying to go as far away as he can. He's trying to flee from the assignment that the Lord's given him. But in verse four, it tells us that this, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Tempest is not a word we use a lot right anymore. Um, it really just means a violent storm. So think about as bad of a storm as you can get. Like, gosh, I don't know if we're going to make it kind of storm. How do we know it was that kind of storm? Because it says even in verse 5, the mariners, the sailors, even they were afraid. So if you make your living on a boat and you're afraid, that's that's pretty bad. That's like if your pilot walks out on your flight and he's scared. Like, you should definitely be scared in that moment if the pilot's scared. So, it, but, but, but the Lord sends a storm. The storm is from... The Lord, the Lord is in his kindness sending a storm after Jonah. But what does Jonah do in the midst of this storm? He falls asleep. He's still trying to escape and run from God. He's still trying to flee. It's like, I'm going to still ignore reality. Have you guys done that before in the midst of a storm, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, even when the Lord might be trying to get your attention, still finding a way to numb yourself to what the Lord might be trying to say? Every act of disobedience to God has some kind of storm attached to it. And that's not because our God is punitive. That's not because our God is vindictive. It's rather because our God loves us. He loves us too much to let us flee from what we need most, which is him. So after a while, though, they, they, they roll some dice. They, you know, and that's always a great way to figure out what the Lord's up to, but they roll some dice and then from there, they determine it's, it's, it's this guy. It's the Jonah guy. We've got we've to throw him overboard. So that's exactly what they do in verse 15. They picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And immediately the sea ceases. The tempest stops. It's raging. And there's Jonah. Jonah is then uh, by an appointed whale or fish, whatever you want to call it. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Three days and three nights. And chapter two is is this prayer that was was read in our scripture reading portion is, is what seems like Jonah being brought to the depths. Jonah being brought down. Jonah being taken into a place of brokenness. He has three days of isolation. Three days of the Lord captivating him to finally get his attention. You know, there is a really interesting sequence that that is noted throughout this this first chapter that we've read, and it's one of going down. One of the marks of a disciple we talk about regularly at Stonegate is that a disciple needs the gospel, that we are gospel-needy people, and often need could only be surfaced or identified as the Lord brings us low. And check this out. See how the Lord continues to take Jonah down, not because he's trying to pay him back, but rather because he's trying to bring him back. Jonah's running from God has a descent pattern to it. First, he's sent down to Joppa. Then, he's sent down to the ship. Then, he goes down into a fish. And then, he goes down into the depths of the ocean. There's a downward descent. But have you ever noticed that often God takes you down? so he can bring you around. That that's exactly how he wants to get your attention. That often it's not till he can cut out all the rest of the noise, all the other things that you're prone to run to, all the other things that you wanna rely on, your smarts, your intelligence, your bank account, your relationships, your health, whatever it is. Often the Lord brings us down because brokenness can be a beautiful place for the Lord to do some work with us that he can't do in any other places. Have you ever thought about all the transformative, the good work? I'm sure if we had time this morning, we went around the room, we just had an open mic moment. We would all tell stories of beauty, of transformative work, of the Lord meeting us in our brokenness in ways that we otherwise would not have been able to hear him or learn from him. That's what the Lord's doing with Jonah. He's bringing him down to turn him around. And what's great about a place of brokenness too is brokenness has a way of draining out all of our self-righteousness. It has a way of exhausting all of our schemes because once again, this isn't a God who's trying to pay us back. It's a God who's trying to bring us back. And often he brings us back by bringing us into brokenness. And as we lean into that place of brokenness, that place of neediness and dependency, we're able to finally understand grace in a way that we otherwise would never comprehend. See, our God, yes, yes, he does cut at times. He cuts into our lives and there's pain, but he doesn't cut like a butcher. He cuts like a surgeon because he looks at our lives and he sees things that are not good for us. And that if he was to leave them there or to leave us alone in them, the pain would be far worse. The damage would be far worse. So Jonah has this moment, this three days where he seems to come to a place of repentance, where he seems to have a moment of contrition. So what does the Lord do? Jonah is given another chance to be the prophet that he's supposed to be. Jonah has had a moment of gospel neediness, a moment of brokenness, where he seen that God wasn't trying to pay him back, but to bring him back, literally bring him back to his mission, which was to go to Nineveh. And now he says, Jonah, I want you to do that very same thing. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell them, I'm not trying to pay them back, but I want to bring them back as well. So after three days, the the fish vomits him out. Um, That's got to be an interesting moment. Uh, I'm not sure how that all goes, but it happens. And then in verse uh, one of chapter three, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So he gets another chance. He gets another moment to go be the prophet that he's supposed to be. And the Lord says, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city and call out against it. The message that I tell you. So he's saying, Go be the prophet that I want you to be. Share the message. Be 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 the, 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 the prophet that I, I want you to be to the people of Nineveh. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Here's his sermon. You guys ready for his sermon? It's an amazing sermon. It's only five words. It's a five, when you guys like a five word sermon this morning, get out early. So here's his five word sermon. All right. Yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. It's five words in the Hebrew, five words. That's it. That's the entire sermon. I mean, that, that's what he does. He walks in and just goes, Hey, five days. And you guys are all going to be destroyed. And then he sits down. Now, I don't think you have to be an expert on preaching to know that that's not probably the best sermon you're ever going to hear. This is a payback sermon. This is still something what's revealing in this sermon is there's not a, there's not a, a call to repentance. There's not a call of like, the, God wants you to experience grace, that God wants to bring you back, that he's not trying to pay you back. Rather, Jonah is going all fire and brimstone, amen? Jonah's just letting them have. It. It's just a five-word sermon. It's a, it's a classic kind of payback sermon. This sermon is revealing and telling because, in all honesty, Jonah still doesn't want to see the Ninevites spared. He doesn't want to see them brought back. He wants to see them get payback. This is a payback sermon. And it's so easy to pile on Jonah, but I think you and I, we tell all sorts of payback sermons as well. We have payback sermons and scripts that run in our mind constantly. When we think about people around us, maybe someone that's wounded us, someone that's hurt us, someone that's betrayed us, someone that's disappointed us, someone that has done something we just considered absolutely unforgivable, there is a payback sermon that runs constantly inside of our minds. There is a grumbling, there is a nursing of that, that script that goes through our mind just wanting to see a moment of payback. Who's that in your mind? Who's that in your heart when you think about them? Your heart is not one of wanting to see them brought back, but you want to see them paid back. Is there someone in your mind? Is there someone in your life? Is there someone in your past that when you think of them, you don't want them to actually receive grace? And if you're really honest, you don't think they deserve grace. And if they got grace, you actually might even be angry. These payback fantasies that so many of us will often nurse turn into a curse because as they they take root inside of our souls and then they bloom and blossom, they turn into angerness and bitterness, and they're incredibly anti-gospel because the whole message of the gospel is that no one deserves grace. No one. That's the offensiveness of grace is you can't deserve it. Only the undeserved even get grace. If you nurse these payback fantasies, they eventually turn into a curse. But here's the thing, though: the Lord is sovereign, right? So, in spite of Jonah's five-word, five five-word, less than, uh, shall we say, great sermon, Nineveh repents. They actually respond like there's an amazing like, response to this. In fact, the entire city, the king comes forward. And he's like, everyone, we need to get on board. We need to repent. We need to listen to Jonah. We need to turn from our wicked ways. It's probably five to 600,000 people in Nineveh says later on at the end 120,000 but that's just primarily taking into account probably children and women and and and, and young people but there's there's probably 5 to 600,000 people and this should be a moment of amazing rejoicing right imagine if 5 to 600,000 people averted destruction in dfw we would sing for for weeks wouldn't we we would rejoice that's not what Jonah does huh uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry. He wasn't just angry. He was exceedingly angry. You guys know about that kind of anger, right? That's not like uh, someone cut me off in traffic. That's like, man, I want to I hurt them. Like, I, I physically want to harm them. Jonah is exceedingly angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, oh, Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live this is what Jonah's saying. He's like, "This is what I was afraid of. I knew this was going to happen, God. When I think about you, I know that you're merciful. I know the very first adjective you ever used to describe yourself in Exodus 34 was compassionate. You're compassionate, and I, 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 I just, I, I just knew this was coming. I knew you would be gracious. I knew you would, and I wanted destruction. I wanted them destroyed. And he's angry." You know, it's such a wonderful self-righteous indicator inside of our hearts that when we think about something not going our way, do we get bitter? Um, Or do we repent? Can there be a joyful, glad submission and surrender to the work of the Lord? Uh, You think about the, the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son, and what you see in the older brother in that parable is that his younger brother gets grace. His younger brother gets forgiven. His brother, a younger brother should be paid back, but instead he gets brought back as well. And the older brother can't stand it. His self-righteousness is too strong inside of his heart. And he wants his younger brother to be paid back, not brought back into the family. And so he gets bitter and he grumbles because he has not yet learned to understand what grace really is. See, the interesting thing that's finally revealed for us about Jonah in these couple verses is that Jonah is just as lost, if not more so, than the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't know God. Jonah doesn't understand the heart of God. Jonah's still banking on his religious resume or his position, or even in some ways, like whatever scorecard he's keeping of superiority when he looks around at people and he just says, not them. They don't deserve grace. They've gone too far. What about you and me? Are there people that when we look around, we just have that posture. God, I don't want to see them brought back. I want to see them paid back. You know, often people uh, will critique the Bible or critique Christianity when they think and say, it's a religion of judgment, and I find that so offensive. What's interesting for Jonah is he doesn't find judgment offensive at all. He actually finds grace and love offensive. See, for Jonah, the most offensive thing is not judgment, but it's grace. It's love. Is there someone in your life that that would be true for when you think about them? It would actually be offensive to think about them receiving love, receiving grace? See, what Jonah's actually doing here is he's putting God on trial. As C.S. Lewis famously said, he's putting God in the dock. He's putting God on the... The, 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 trial stand of saying, God, you're out of line. God, I, I know you're sovereign. I know you made everything, but I, I just can't fathom that this would be who you really are, that you're this slow to anger, that you have this much compassion and that you would pour out love for rebels, for people that are brutuous and barbaric like the Ninevites. It just seems like too great of a scandal. And Jonah, actually, I mean, this is how deep this goes into the soul of Jonah. Verse five Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what could become of the city. Super interesting phrase. We already know it's going to become the city, right? Like there was this big revival. Everyone repented. The king mandated that everyone turn from their wicked and evil ways. But guess what? Jonah so much wants to see them paid back and not brought back. He's holding out hope that maybe they'll regress. He's, still, he's, still, he's going outside the city and he's like, maybe maybe just given enough time, they'll go back into their wicked ways and God will still destroy them. He still can't accept that God's verdict is one of bringing back and not paying back. And then isn't that interesting? He should be in the city partying with them, rejoicing with them, celebrating with them, worshiping with them, teaching them, loving them. But instead he goes out of the city and he goes out of the city to wait for judgment. You know who else went outside the city? Jesus would go outside the city, but Jesus didn't go outside the city to judge, but he went outside the city to be judged. He went outside the city to save the city. He went outside the city to hang on a tree because he loves the city. So Jesus went out to the hill to watch over the city of Jerusalem and there he would die so that you and I would not be paid back, but we would be brought back. And this grace, this grace is for everyone. I don't even need to know your story, but I can boldly tell you today that the grace of God is for you. The grace of God is for you. He doesn't want to pay you back. He wants to bring you back. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, do you do you do well to be angry for the plant? So there was this plant that happened in the preceding verses that grew up and then it shriveled and Jonah threw a hissy fit. He just, you know, he starts pouting and gets all mad because he lost his plant that was giving him some shade. And here's what Jonah says. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So dramatic. I mean, he's, he's, it's almost like, come on, Jonah, grow up. But the, the reason this is interesting, this is the second time Jonah has wished for death. Wished for death. Jonah's heart is so hard. Jonah's heart is so set in the payback category versus the bring back category that he'd rather die than see people receive grace. Friends, I, I look around sometimes at, at our communities, at our world. And I wonder if the lost world around us, what they think we think of them. What they think our posture is. Do they think that that we, we love them so much that we would actually lay down our lives so that they could be brought back? Or do they think sometimes maybe hold up in this church wall thing that we're all doing that we really, don't, we really don't care what happens to them? Will we go outside? Will we want to see people brought back even if their story seems way outside the confines of who we think deserves grace? And this is really where the story has such an amazing ending. Verse 11 says, and should I not pity Nineveh? This is the Lord speaking. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, and that's primarily just probably just children, who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So did you catch that? He says, should I not pity Nineveh? When I look at Nineveh, when I think of Nineveh, should there, shouldn't I have some pity? And pity, the, the, the word there is really just also the word, uh, other translations use it to, to translate to compassion. Should I have compassion? And compassion, if you look at it in the Greek, primarily how it's used throughout most of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is not just a sense of like, man, that, I'm sorry that's happening to you, and then go about your, your life and eat a sandwich. But rather it's this deep, like, I've got to act. I'm, I'm compelled to action. I'm looking at you, I'm seeing your plight, I'm seeing your situation, and I need to intervene. I need to move toward the mess. I need to go toward that. Compassion. When we think of God, do we realize he's got a compassionate heart, a heart that actually wants to bring us back and not pay us back. B.B. Warfield, uh, one of the most well-known theologians from the 20th century, he did a, a pretty thorough study in just looking at the emotional life of Jesus and he said, by far and away, the, the primary emotion, the primary emotional phrase that's used to describe Jesus was that he was moved to compassion. By far and away, not, not anger, not tiredness, not, not anything like that. It's not one of judgment and wrath, but rather it's one of compassion. Jesus routinely felt compassionate. He moved toward people that were rebellious. He moved toward people that by all intents and purposes and appearances didn't deserve grace, but Jesus moved toward them compassion. Compassion is at the heart of Jesus. And it's also at the heart of God in the story of Jonah. We are seeing a seed, a seed of, of, of God showing his heart in Jonah that's fulfilled in Jesus and in his ministry. And what, what God begins to do for Nineveh, Jesus wants to continue to do for all of the world. In fact, that, that famous verse that's shown at every major sporting event, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, and and you and I, friends, we are Nineveh. There's a Nineveh raging inside each and every one of us where we are broken and we are rebels and we are messed up and we are far from God, but yet he moves toward us. And this Advent season is always such a deep reminder of that because God does not stay on his throne high above in heaven, shaking his head at us, wondering why we are so wicked and messed up, but rather he intervenes and he comes down into this world. He stoops low because he has compassion for his kids and he has a love that has no ends and he doesn't want to pay you back, but he wants to bring you. Back. That's what kind of God we're talking about. So, um, 30 years later, after uh, breaking those beer steins, um, you know, I'd routinely see my grandpa over the years, and that story would kind of get brought up at family moments and events and, and things like that. And I would always wince a little bit, like, gosh. And one time I even like hopped on eBay. I'm like, man, how much did all that actually cost? And it was enough zeros that made my head hurt. Uh, but it was, it was a lot of money. And I definitely, uh, you know, I, I always had like a little bit of a wince with it. I just like, man, I really messed up there. I wish I could pay my grandpa back. And so 30 years later, um, Thanksgiving a few years ago, uh, my grandpa pulled this out, um, of a box and gave it to me. And uh, it was one of the beer steins that I broke when uh, I was five years old and he had scooped up all of those pieces. And uh, if you looked up closely at this, you can see all the cracks and parts where he glued it back together and he was willing to uh, not pay me back, but bring me back. And I couldn't pay him back. There was no way I could fix what I'd broken, what I'd messed up, what I'd destroyed. And yet he was willing to move toward me. I remember when he gave this to me, I just felt like that deep sense of like, just love. Just a deep, profound sense of, of his love for me. Just his grace. Just his compassion. You know, it would have been very easy over the years for him to hold a sense of like, Can you pay me back? Should you pay me back? But I I had no ability to do that, it was priceless. Those are one of a kind things, they can't be replaced. And yet he took all the pieces of that and put it back together and gave it to me. And every time I look at it, I just am reminded of God's love for me, That, that that's the kind of heavenly father I have as well. One who looks at your life, no matter how many ways you've broken it, no matter how many pieces are all over the floor, he picks up all those pieces and puts them back together. Because God's not trying to pay you back. He's trying to bring you back. And this really is the story of Jonah, right? Even Jonah, who's lost, Jesus wants to bring him back. Church, this story this story is not about, you know, don't be like Jonah. That's not the point of these stories. No, this story, on the other hand, is to show us that Jonah is a shabby stand-in for the star of the story. And someone much more significant than Jonah is meant to come along. Jonah is meant to create an ache inside each and every one of us, a longing, an expectation even, for the one who doesn't just speak for God, but the one who is God. Jonah is meant to remind us in all the ways that he falls flat and he fails to extend grace, how there will be a one who gives us ultimate grace, cosmic grace, who extends mercy to all of the world. Anyone who can hear the good news of the gospel, the mercy of God is for you. And this grace, this grace has no confines. In fact, the story of Jonah is meant to disturb us in just how limitless and boundless the grace of God truly is. Just when you think you've gotten uncomfortable with grace, you're just at the threshold of understanding it. That's the kind of grace we're talking about. And this one, this perfect Jonah, the greater Jonah, as Jesus calls him in Matthew, is not stingy with his mercy, but he's lavish with his love, and he wants to lavish this love upon you today. And how do we know that? Because we know that Jesus... Jesus was willing to be swallowed up by the storm of death as he hung on the cross for your sins and for mine. So where Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale as he descended down because of his sin and brokenness, Jesus takes on the storm of God's wrath for you and for me so that we would be made new, so that the storm of descent into hell would not be the final vert upon our lives, but rather one of God bringing us back, not paying us back. That's the good news of the gospel, church. That's Jesus. That's our king. That's our Messiah. That's our perfect prophet. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you're from. I know this. God doesn't want to pay you back. Absolutely, this morning, he wants to bring you back. And if you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian today. You do. Because God's grace is for you. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the men and women in this room. And you are a gracious God who knows no limits. That you would run across the universe. You would steep low to walk amongst us. You are God with us. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And God, I just am praying specifically for anyone in this room this morning who thinks they've gone too far. They've made too big of a mess. They've blown it. And they feel like, God, of course you would want to pay them back. But Lord, I just, I pray your spirit even right now would sit firmly and clearly upon them saying, you just want to bring them back that you love them, you love them so much you would die on a cross for their sins and this grace is for everyone no matter what we've done and that all of us stand justified only by your blood, by your finished work. And So God, there is a a joy within us when we look at your son Jesus being the, the, the greater Jonah that our hearts just want to cry out how worthy you are. You're not a God who just tells us to get our act together, but you are a God who who loves us. And so, God, we, we get to sing songs of worship and adoration, just being reminded how worthy you truly are. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.